0: Picture this, if you will. A 63-year-old male with a history of hyperlipidemia is brought to the emergency department by ambulance, complaining of chest pain and dyspnea. Over the past week, he's noticed an increasingly frequent sensation of tightness in his chest when he climbs the stairs to his apartment. But about an hour prior to arrival, while lying in bed, the sensation suddenly escalated abruptly to a crushing pain. Vitals reveal a blood pressure of 109 over 71 millimeters mercury, heart rate of 99 beats per minute, oxygen saturation of 96% and a respiratory rate of 25 breaths per minute. On exam, the patient appears gray, sweaty, and in mild respiratory distress. You immediately order a 12-lead EKG, which reveals ST elevations in the inferior leads. What management must you initiate to give your patient the best chance of survival and recovery? And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Argent Iron. Bringing topics in cardiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. Define acute coronary syndrome and describe the spectrum of disease. 2. List the medications used for the emergent treatment of acute coronary syndrome. And for each, describe its specific utility, mechanism of action, and possible adverse effects. And 3. Describe the indications and contraindications of percutaneous coronary intervention and thrombolytics for emergent coronary revascularization of ST-elevation myocardial infarction. Part 1. What is acute coronary syndrome? Acute coronary syndrome is one of the most common life-threatening disease processes in adults. It's been extensively researched, from pathophysiology to treatment, and the robust data from these clinical trials has led to complex protocols of workup and management that ensure timely standardized care from the ambulance all the way to tertiary care facilities. As such, every physician should be familiar with the rapid evaluation and management of acute coronary syndrome. And that begins with simply being able to define what is acute coronary syndrome. So first and foremost, Acute coronary syndrome is defined by a clinical presentation suspicious for acutely diminished blood flow to a portion of the heart, generally caused when a ruptured atherosclerotic plaque forms a thrombus within a coronary artery. Now you tell me, what's the first symptom that comes to mind when you think of acute coronary occlusion? Chest pain, right? Usually a pressure or a tightness, potentially radiating to the jaw or the arms. It's usually worse with exertion and accompanied by sweating, nausea, dyspnea, dizziness. Now keep in mind though that a patient may present with only some of these classic features or they may simply not be very good at communicating exactly what they're feeling. I can't tell you how many times I have patients swear up and down that oh no I don't have chest pain and only later do I find out that they actually have chest pressure which they insist is totally different. (sighs) Spoiler alert, for the purposes of ACS it's the same thing. But while patients may present with atypical anginal symptoms, it's important to establish that the patient's history and physical examination are vital to the workup of acute coronary syndrome, and a sufficiently suspicious clinical presentation may be all that is required to make the presumptive diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome and begin treatment. The spectrum of disease that defines how urgently and invasively the patient must be worked up and treated is largely based on two diagnostic tests— the electrocardiogram or EKG and the serum troponin levels. Now, by national guidelines, an EKG must be obtained and interpreted within 10 minutes of triage for suspected ACS. And the primary purpose of rapidly obtaining an EKG in the acute setting is to screen for patterns of ST elevation characteristic of the most serious types of myocardial infarctions. The full thickness, or transmural, myocardial infarctions generally caused by complete occlusion of the coronary artery. These ST-elevation myocardial infarctions, or STEMIs, require emergent intervention to open up the blocked coronary to avoid permanent damage to the heart. So if a patient has a diagnostic EKG, no further testing is required to proceed directly to more invasive treatment and diagnostic strategies. The EKG is also useful for evaluating for other changes that increase suspicion for a partial-thickness myocardial infarction, most specifically ST depressions and T-wave inversions. But actually, the EKG is not a particularly sensitive test for ACS. It misses a large percentage of these patients. The much more sensitive initial test is the serum troponin level, which is a measure of myocardial cell death. In the correct clinical context, elevated serum troponin levels are diagnostic of a myocardial infarction. A patient without diagnostic ST elevations, who is later found to have an elevated serum troponin level, is said to have a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, or NSTEMI. This is often caused by a partial thickness, or subendocardial infarct, an incomplete occlusion of the coronary artery. But the main practical distinction is that workup and treatment did not always have to be pursued as emergently and aggressively in an NSTEMI as in a STEMI. Finally, A patient with a clinical history concerning for acute or rapidly escalating anginal symptoms, but without an elevation in serum troponin, cannot be said to have a myocardial infarction, but may be presumed to have unstable angina. And while this diagnosis is becoming less common, as lab tests for serum troponins become more sensitive, the presumed mechanism of disease is the same as in other forms of ACS. The rapid escalation of anginal symptoms suggests rapidly increasing occlusion secondary to thrombus formation. Therefore, even though myocardial cells haven't started dying yet, such patients may warrant similarly aggressive workup and treatment as patients with an NSTEMI, since, by definition, the thrombus is unstable and is a high risk of progressing to true infarction. Alright, let's review. What diagnosis is made when a patient has an elevated serum troponin? Elevated troponin levels indicate that a patient has had a myocardial infarction, either a STEMI or an NSTEMI. But here's an important clinical point. A STEMI is distinguished from an NSTEMI based on the EKG. And if the EKG says STEMI, well, you don't wait around for the troponin levels before mobilizing all those resources you have at your disposal to open up the coronary artery. Don't worry, it'll almost certainly be elevated. Now, a word of caution. Many patients with acute coronary occlusions present in atypical ways— where chest pain may not be the primary complaint. Check out the brick on the diagnosis of angina pectoris and myocardial infarction when you have a moment for more information on these less straightforward cases, but this should serve as a brief overview. For the rest of the podcast, though, we're going to focus on treatment. Part 2. Which Drugs Lower Mortality in ACS? Now, in the bricks on the diagnosis of myocardial infarction and angina pectoris, there's a lot more information on the natural history of the disease process as the plaque grows, ruptures, thromboses, and causes an infarct that evolves over time. And don't get me wrong, that's incredibly important. But when you're dealing with a potentially life-threatening medical problem, you don't often have the luxury of waiting to collect all the information, get all the results back. As the cardiologists like to say, Time is myocardium, and sometimes it's worthwhile to empirically hit patients with medications knowing that the risk of unnecessarily treating some patients is worth the benefit of expediting care. The medications I'll describe in this section are proven in huge multicenter studies that analyzed risk and benefit to lower the mortality of potential ACS. And the moment you suspect acute coronary syndrome based on the patient's history and physical, you need to start treatment. Now, the mainstays of empiric therapy are the antiplatelet medications that inhibit the activation of platelets that form the occlusive thrombus with a pretty low risk of complications. Of these, it's the humble aspirin that is still the mainstay of modern empiric therapy for suspected ACS. Aspirin is a cyclooxygenase inhibitor, preventing the synthesis of the cytokine thromboxane that activates platelets. What's more, aspirin binds irreversibly, meaning that it's effective for the duration of the platelet's lifespan of seven days. Now, as I was alluding to, aspirin is one of the oldest and best-researched medical therapies for acute coronary syndrome, and it remains the first line of treatment for a suspected myocardial infarction. Pre-hospital emergency professionals from 911 operators to paramedics are trained to either recommend or directly administer therapeutic doses of aspirin to patients at the first hint of possible ACS. But it's still the responsibility of in-hospital medical professionals to ensure that aspirin has been administered and to administer it themselves, if not. When it comes to complications, well, there's something of a common theme with many of the medications administered in acute coronary syndrome. Since the presumed source of the symptoms is an occlusive thrombus, many of the medications administered interfere with clot formation, leading to the obvious potential complication of bleeding, especially from the gastrointestinal tract. Additionally, aspirin specifically can cause kidney damage in much the same way the NSAIDs do, But the risk of both life-threatening bleeding and kidney damage as a result of a single dose of aspirin is extremely low. And given its high, well-evidenced mortality benefit, the only reason to not give aspirin is a documented history of an anaphylactic reaction. A similar category of medications are often informally referred to as the advanced antiplatelets, which inhibit platelet activation through a slightly different mechanism. See, in normal physiology, adenosine diphosphate serves as the paracrine signal between platelets that binds to a class of G-protein-coupled receptors known as P2Y12, or just the ADP receptors, in order to initiate the platelet activation pathway. The advanced antiplatelets block the ADP receptor, effectively inhibiting activation and aggregation to other platelets that happen to be secreting ADP at the site of platelet plug formation. The advanced antiplatelets clopidogrel and prasugrel bind irreversibly, like aspirin. Ticagrelor and cangrelor, however, bind reversibly. So, advanced antiplatelets are more potent inhibitors of platelet activation than aspirin and, unsurprisingly, cause more bleeding complications. Ticagrelor has an additional concerning side effect. In up to 10% of patients, it causes significant shortness of breath by uncertain mechanisms. Furthermore, evidence for their therapeutic benefit, when empirically administered in addition to aspirin, isn't actually that strong, with one very important exception, as we'll discuss later. In patients requiring stent placement, the addition of advanced antiplatelets on top of aspirin substantially decreases the likelihood that the stent itself will form a thrombus inside it. So, patients who have had stents placed are generally prescribed both aspirin and an ADP receptor antagonist for 12 months after the stent is placed. But in the acute phase of ACS, early administration of advanced antiplatelets is generally reserved for those who are likely to require coronary intervention, such as patients with STEMI or a high-risk NSTEMI. The final class of antiplatelets are the GP2B3A inhibitors, which includes the drugs Epsiximab, Eptifibatide, and Tirofaban. I know, it's like word soup over here. If it helps, the 2B3A inhibitors all have either 2 or 3 I's in the name. You know, II like Roman numeral 2 or III like Roman numeral 3. No? Oh well, I tried. Anyway, the GP2B3A inhibitors antagonize glycoprotein 2B3A receptor, which inhibits the final step in platelet aggregation, where the receptor binds fibrinogen, which is what links the platelets to form a clot. These GP2B3A inhibitors, therefore, decrease platelet aggregation. Now, these medications are intravenous agents that are mostly used in patients as an adjunct to percutaneous coronary intervention, either immediately before or during the procedure. These are especially used in patients with a large clot burden or whose symptoms are inadequately controlled with other antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapies. Of the three classes of antiplatelet, these are the most potent. They have the highest bleeding risk and should be used with extreme caution in patients at risk for major gastrointestinal or CNS bleeding. Furthermore, the data for their efficacy and mortality benefit is the least robust of all the antiplatelets, so their use is usually pretty selective and generally guided by a cardiologist's expert opinion. All right, guys, let's take a moment to review. What are the three classes of antiplatelet, and which has the greatest evidence for mortality benefit in patients with suspected ACS? In ascending order of potency, you have aspirin, the ADP receptor or P2Y12 antagonists, and the GP2B3A receptor antagonists. Of all of these, aspirin has the most robust evidence for mortality benefit and the lowest rate of adverse effects, including major bleeding. Therefore, unless a patient has a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction, they absolutely should be receiving aspirin at the first clinical suspicion of ACS. Now let's move on to the next class of medications, the anticoagulants. Unfractionated and low molecular weight heparin, a.k.a. enoxaparin, are drugs that inhibit the coagulation cascade. I know, I know. I can practically be groaning the moment I mention the coagulation cascade. Don't worry, we'll keep the biochemistry part of this focused. The most important thing to remember is that to form a thrombus, you need both platelets and fibrin to link together. And the antiplatelets take care of the platelet part of the equation. The anticoagulants inhibit the conversion of fibrinogen to the active fibrin. So in very basic terms, the coagulation cascade is a series of sequential enzyme activations that results in the activation of thrombin, the enzyme ultimately capable of activating the fibrin molecule that participates in clot formation. But to activate thrombin, factor 10 needs to be activated by intrinsic and extrinsic blah blah blah, 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 blah with factor 5 as a cofactor. More relevant to ACS though, both unfractionated heparin and anoxaparin inhibit the last two enzymes in the coagulation cascade, namely thrombin and factor ten. The two less commonly used anticoagulants either inhibit one or the other. Fondaparinux only inhibits activated factor ten, and bivalirudin only inhibits thrombin. And like the antiplatelets, the anticoagulants don't actively help dissolve the thrombus, they just prevent it from continuing to grow or propagate. In the treatment of ACS, the heparins are only administered in the hospital setting, and their main role is to buy time until the coronary obstruction can be definitively revascularized, or alternatively, to prevent a potential thrombotic obstruction from worsening while further testing is pursued to determine the need to open up the coronary artery. Unfractionated heparin is given as an intravenous infusion, and an is given as a series of subcutaneous injections. Needless to say, an oxyperin is much more convenient to administer and has much more predictable systemic effects, meaning that you don't have to continuously monitor the patient's PT and PTT to titrate your dosing. The advantage to an unfractionated heparin infusion, unlike the antiplatelets or an oxaparin, is that when you turn off the infusion, the effects end very quickly. So while heparins cause an increased risk of bleeding that is substantially higher than that of aspirin. High-risk patients like post-operative or trauma patients may benefit from the more easily titratable, unfractionated heparin infusion. Now, an absolute contraindication for use of either of the heparins is a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, an immune response to heparin characterized by platelet destruction and hypercoagulability that results in thrombocytopenia. HIT occurs more commonly with intravenous heparin, but can occur with subcutaneous enoxaparin as well. In these patients, the anticoagulants fondaparinux and bivalirudin should be considered. Now, we're going to take a little break from the meds that address the thrombus part of the equation and move on to two classes of medications initiated during a hospital admission for acute coronary syndrome. These are also hugely important as maintenance medications afterwards to reduce mortality. And these two medications are the beta blockers and the statins. Beta blockers, as the name suggests, inhibit the beta adrenergic receptors in the heart that are normally responsible for increasing the rate and force of cardiac contraction. So a beta blocker, in essence, forces the heart to take a chill pill and stop stressing itself out so much. And when you decrease the work the heart has to do, you decrease the amount of oxygen consumed. Remember, every incidence of myocardial ischemia is due to a mismatch between the oxygen supply from the bloodstream and the oxygen demand. And if the antiplatelets and anticoagulants are responsible for maintaining the oxygen supply, then the beta blockers are responsible for decreasing the demand. So beta blockers have a well-documented mortality benefit in patients who are either experiencing or have experienced a myocardial infarction. And as a result, these are typically given as soon as possible, if the patient can handle it. Well, that sounds ominous, Arjun. What could you possibly mean? Well, it is ominous, because the heart has to be doing some work at all times. Otherwise, you know, you die. If the heart is already ischemic, while doing the bare minimum amount of work to keep the patient alive, like a patient with cardiogenic shock or acute heart failure, the solution is not to force the heart to do less work. That can literally kill you. So, while early beta-blocker administration is generally a good idea, and it's almost always initiated at some point during the hospital admission, you have to keep those two contraindications in mind during the early management of acute coronary syndrome. Additionally, beta-blockers are primarily used in ACS for their effects on the cardiac beta-1 receptors, but not all beta-blockers are so specific in which receptors they target. The most generic ones are carvedilol and labetalol, which you should memorize, and they target the alpha 1 and the beta receptors. Remember what alpha 1 receptors do? The main cardiovascular effect is to cause vasoconstriction, right? So, a combined alpha beta blocker will not only decrease heart rate and myocardial work, it'll also decrease blood pressure through vasodilation, which is actually awesome if your patient has hypertension. And a lot of patients with ACS do. But if not, well, then you're going to want to use something else. Of the rest of the beta blockers, some block only the beta-1 receptor on the cardiac myocytes. Others are less selective and also block the beta-2 receptors that are responsible for bronchodilation. The ones that start with the letters A through M, like metoprolol, are beta-1 selective. And the ones that start with the letters N through Z, like propranolol, are beta non-selective. Now, usually beta-2 blockade isn't a huge deal, but the possibility of bronchospasm, especially in patients with asthma or COPD, means that in these patients, beta-1 selective agents are generally preferred. Finally, the statin drug class has a significant mortality benefit in both the acute phase of ACS and as part of the chronic management of patients who've had a myocardial infarction. And the reason for this isn't totally intuitive. See, statins reduce LDL cholesterol levels, which is the bad cholesterol, via inhibition of HMG-CoA reductase, and it makes sense why that would be important in the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, since, after all, LDL contributes to the development of atherosclerotic plaques that cause ACS. But when reviewing patient outcomes, one of the strongest reductions in all-cause and cardiovascular mortality is gained— when statins are administered immediately following an MI. Weird, since it feels like if you have a myocardial infarction caused by plaque rupture, it seems a bit late to be trying to prevent plaque formation. But statins also have a number of additional benefits that aren't completely understood. Among these benefits, bench studies have demonstrated their ability to stabilize an atherosclerotic plaque, decrease inflammation, reverse endothelial dysfunction, and decrease thrombogenicity all of which have been postulated to decrease plaque rupture. And it's because of these additional effects that national guidelines recommend that statin should be given within 12 hours of the onset of MI symptoms. In fact, many practitioners administer them as soon as ACS is suspected, since, honestly, their risk profile is lower than any of the other medications mentioned. In patients with demonstrated myocardial infarctions, high-dose statins should also be prescribed long-term to lower cardiovascular mortality. Now, as I mentioned, statins are generally well-tolerated and have virtually negligible side effects if administered as a single dose in acute coronary syndrome. They do have the potential to induce myalgias, which, in the long term, a patient may not tolerate well. Statins can also cause liver inflammation, and patients with progressive liver dysfunction may not be the best candidates for statin therapy. All right, quick review gang. When should the statins be given to a patient with a myocardial infarction? Statins should be given within 12 hours of the onset of symptoms since their anti-inflammatory and anti-thrombotic effects decrease both cardiovascular and all-cause mortality in the acute phase of a myocardial infarction. So to review, the medications that decrease mortality in acute coronary syndrome are, 1. The antiplatelets, especially aspirin, 2. The anticoagulants, usually one of the heparins, 3. Beta blockers, And four, statins. Remember those, guys. These could quite literally save a life. Part 3. What medications are used to manage the symptoms of ACS? In the last section, we discussed medications that lower a patient's risk for death after an MI. This section, on the other hand, serves as sort of myth-busters in the medical management of ACS. Now, some of you may have heard the acronym MONA, it's a catchy mnemonic for the cocktail of morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, and aspirin, previously endorsed for the empiric treatment of acute coronary syndrome, and still part of many ambulance protocols. Yet of all of these, only aspirin has had proven mortality benefit. And the reason this Mythbuster section is important is because while these medications listed provide symptom relief, which isn't unimportant, these medications also have potentially dangerous side effects. So, before you treat based on an old protocol realize that the risks may outweigh the benefits. First, morphine was traditionally used for pain control during an MI, the reason being that, in theory, pain control would also decrease the myocardial work by removing a source of sympathetic nervous system stimulation. But since then, studies have shown decreased survival rates and potential interference with the absorption of other life-saving medications, like the ADP receptor antagonists. Additionally, Morphine might mask the patient's pain without actually treating the cause. And that's a problem, because the presence of ongoing intractable pain, even without ST elevations on the EKG, is an important clinical indicator that expedited intervention may be necessary. Nowadays, morphine is only recommended when absolutely needed for severe chest pain, not controlled by other medications. The medication most commonly used for pain control in ACS is the vasodilator nitroglycerin. By stimulating the synthesis of cyclic GMP, nitroglycerin can cause vascular smooth muscle to relax, especially in the veins. And the resulting venodilation causes blood to pool in the systemic veins, reducing venous return to the heart and decreasing ventricular preload. Nitroglycerin secondarily causes coronary artery vasodilation, and the net effect is to reduce myocardial oxygen demand while increasing myocardial blood supply. So this is the mechanism by which it relieves the pain of ischemia, but despite making a whole lot of physiologic sense, it's not actually demonstrated to improve survival. Additionally, nitroglycerin does have a number of side effects and contraindications. The most common side effect is nothing more serious than headache. However, it does occur in more than 60% of patients taking nitroglycerin. Like the beta blockers, nitroglycerin can cause hypotension and is contraindicated in patients with cardiogenic shock. There's also a relative contraindication, in particular, for patients with inferior wall or right ventricular MIs, because they may become severely hypotensive if the preload is decreased abruptly with nitroglycerin. But unlike beta blockers, nitrates actually have a therapeutic benefit in patients with acute heart failure. An important drug interaction is with the phosphodiesterase-5 inhibitors, like sildenafil, you know, like Viagra the ones most commonly used to treat male erectile dysfunction. The combination of nitrates with the phosphodiesterase inhibitors may lead to severe hypotension and is contraindicated. Finally, oxygen is often empirically administered to patients with MIs, despite the fact that most patients with MIs aren't actually hypoxic, even if the MI causes dyspnea. So a good rule of thumb is that if a patient's not hypoxic, i.e. an oxygen saturation greater than 90 there is no benefit to administering supplemental oxygen. Furthermore, studies have shown that raising oxygen levels to supra levels in patients with ACS can actually cause harm and worsen mortality. Alright, time for a quick knowledge check. Why might morphine be harmful for a patient having an MI? Not only is morphine associated with lower survival rates, it may also mask the pain of an MI, which is an important clinical clue about the status of your patient. Finally, it may decrease the absorption of life-saving antiplatelet medications. Part 4. How do we use interventional treatments to manage acute coronary syndrome? So the medications we've discussed up until this point only work to prevent additional clot formation or reduce myocardial oxygen demand. In other words, they prevent a bad situation from getting worse, but don't actually fix the problem. If a patient has a myocardial infarction caused by a critical thrombotic event in a coronary artery, well, then you need to find a way to open the artery back up, otherwise referred to as coronary revascularization. And the two most common options for revascularization are percutaneous coronary intervention, in other words, cardiac catheterization, and thrombolysis. In both cases, some benefit may still be obtained as long as revascularization is performed within 12 hours after the MI. But there's robust evidence that, for every minute revascularization is delayed, patient outcomes get worse. Time is myocardium, and the goal is to revascularize the coronary artery as soon as possible. Percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI, is a minimally invasive technique in which the coronary arteries can be accessed through a large intraarterial catheter, known as an introducer sheath, in the wrist or groin. Under fluoroscopic guidance, a smaller catheter can be advanced proximally through the arterial circulation until it reaches the coronary arteries. Then, by intermittently injecting contrast dye, the lumen of the coronary arteries can be visualized, along with any stenosis or occlusions. And this part of the procedure is known as coronary angiography. Now, once identified, a guide wire is then guided past the coronary obstruction or burrowed through it, followed by an inflatable balloon that is inflated inside the obstructed portion of the artery. This technique, known as balloon angioplasty, compresses the clot and the underlying plaque against the walls of the artery and opens the lumen back up. This is almost always followed by the placement of a stent to keep the arterial lumen open, And the combination of balloon angioplasty and stent placement is what is globally referred to as PCI. Now, PCI is the preferred treatment method for STEMI, and by national guidelines, a facility with an interventional cardiologist on call should strive to open up the coronary artery of a patient with a STEMI within 90 minutes of the patient's arrival in the emergency department, known as the door-to-balloon time. And STEMI is also an indication for a PCI, but since the occlusion is generally not complete, revascularization is not quite so time-sensitive and can be performed within 48 hours of symptom onset. A patient with an Nstemi can, therefore, be admitted to the hospital and stabilized, using the medical therapies mentioned, while a more thorough diagnostic workup is performed. And this decreases the likelihood of unnecessary interventions, while decreasing procedure risk as well. Now, in a broader sense, many patients admitted for the workup of ACS will also undergo angiography, as this is the gold standard means of diagnosing a coronary obstruction. If coronary artery stenosis greater than 50% is found in a patient with anginal symptoms or a concerning stress test result, well, then PCI is also generally indicated. Now, the potential acute complications of PCI include distal embolization, arterial dissection, or rarely rupture, an acute kidney injury from high doses of contrast used during angiography, known as contrast-induced nephropathy. At the insertion site where the introducer sheath is placed, namely in the groin or in the wrist, patients can develop a hematoma, pseudoaneurysm, arterial dissection, and in rare cases, limb ischemia. Now the most important late complication of PCI is restenosis, This can be caused by the stent itself, serving as a nidus for thrombus formation, and is the main reason why patients generally require both aspirin and an advanced antiplatelet for 12 months after stent placement. But another important mechanism by which re-stenosis occurs is overgrowth of the tunica intima around the stent. If you think about it, it's not a totally surprising reaction to sticking a foreign body inside an artery, right? But because of this phenomenon of neo-intimal proliferation drug-eluting stents were developed to slowly release chemicals that inhibit intimal growth. The original bare metal stents are used a lot less frequently now, but there is some evidence that in patients who are unlikely to be compliant with their dual antiplatelet therapy, bare metal stents may have a slightly lower risk of instant thrombosis than the drug-eluting stents. Now, PCI should not be performed in patients with coagulopathy or hypercoagulable states, since... In the first case, these patients need to be loaded with heparin before the procedure, and the second case, the stent itself can serve as a nidus for thrombus formation. Additionally, if the diagnostic angiography reveals either stenosis in multiple coronary arteries or a critical stenosis in the left main coronary without collateral flow, then emergency coronary bypass surgery is actually the treatment of choice. In these cases, the The PCI is generally not performed, and the main role of the interventional cardiologist is to provide the cardiothoracic surgeon with detailed preoperative information. In patients with cardiogenic shock, cardiologists can additionally initiate catheter-based life support measures that augment the cardiac output until surgical intervention can be performed. If, on the other hand, a patient presents with a STEMI to a hospital that doesn't have an interventional cardiologist to perform PCI, Intravenous thrombolytic agents like tissue plasminogen activator and streptokinase can be used to chemically lyse the obstructing clot in the coronary artery. The thrombolytics activate endogenous plasmin, which cleaves the fibrin bonds that hold a clot together. Now, if used, they should ideally be given within 30 minutes of first contact with the medical team because the effectiveness of these drugs decreases with time, but they can be given up to 12 hours after the onset of symptoms. The main issue with thrombolytics, unsurprisingly, is an enormous risk of bleeding, including spontaneous gastrointestinal and intracranial hemorrhage. Thrombolytics are absolutely contraindicated if the patient has a history of bleeding disorder, intracranial hemorrhage, or aortic dissection, if they've recently experienced head trauma or an ischemic stroke, or if they currently have uncontrollable hypertension that might predispose them to a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Additionally, there are a number of relative contraindications that go beyond the scope of this discussion, but suffice to say that given the modern hospital and pre-hospital systems of care for patients with ACS, this is definitely more of a last resort option. And that's a wrap. Let's see what you remember about the life-saving treatment of acute coronary syndrome. First, can you describe the spectrum of disease that makes up acute coronary syndrome? ACS has three main forms, ST elevation myocardial infarction, defined by diagnostic contiguous ST elevations on the EKG, non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, defined by elevated troponin levels, and unstable angina, defined by a clinical presentation of escalating frequency of anginal symptoms or new onset chest pain at rest. Second, can you list the four categories of medication that decrease mortality in patients with ACS? First, the antiplatelets, especially aspirin, which should be used as soon as ACS is suspected. Second, the anticoagulants, most commonly heparin or anoxaparin. Third, beta blockers, and fourth, statins. Third, can you name the three therapies commonly used to relieve symptoms of ACS that do not have mortality benefit? Nitrates are used in ACS to relieve chest pain primarily by decreasing preload, but also by increasing coronary vasodilation. But they should be used in caution given their ability to cause hypotension. These are absolutely contraindicated if the patient has recently taken a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Morphine should only be used when absolutely needed for severe pain that is not treatable with nitrates or other medications that do improve mortality benefit, as it's been demonstrated to worsen clinical outcomes, interfere with clinical reassessment, and interfere with other important medications. And finally, oxygen therapy should only be used when the oxygen saturation is less than 90%. Superphysiologic oxygen saturation can actually worsen outcomes as well. Finally, what are the two main strategies for coronary revascularization, and which is the preferred approach? Percutaneous coronary intervention is the gold standard of coronary revascularization and is indicated immediately upon EKG diagnosis of STEMI with a goal of 90 minutes door-to-balloon time. If a patient has an NSTEMI, the intervention should be performed within 48 hours. If PCI is not immediately available, thrombolytics should be administered to STEMI patients. Finally, there are rare instances of severe multivessel coronary disease or critical left-main coronary occlusion in which the preferred approach is not PCI, but rather emergency coronary bypass surgery. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to the patient from the intro. Intro A 63-year-old male presenting with chest pain and dyspnea has an EKG concerning for ST elevations in the inferior leads. What management must you initiate to give your patient the best chance of survival and recovery? You instruct the charge nurse to page the interventional cardiologist and activate the STEMI response team, a coordinated hospital response that frees up a cardiac catheterization lab and mobilizes the entire team. This is all to ensure that coronary revascularization can take place within 90 minutes of arrival. Time is myocardium, after all. You asked the EMT whether aspirin was administered, and he replied that they didn't have time to administer what he describes as monotherapy. You immediately administer aspirin, and given the anticipated need for PCI, you administer loading doses of heparin and the advanced antiplatelet clopidogrel. You order a torvastatin as well, but since the patient is dyspneic with a low normal blood pressure, you decide that administering a beta blocker can wait until the patient is more stable. The cardiologist arrives, confirms the need for a PCI, and the patient is taken to the cath lab. Coronary angiography reveals a 99% occlusion in the right coronary artery, and within 70 minutes of arrival, the cardiologist places a stent and restores blood flow to the inferior wall of the heart. that's our show if you like what you heard make sure to like and subscribe on apple podcasts remember your feedback helps us improve you can enjoy the full bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com complete with illustrations questions flashcards and active learning so go check that out if you haven't already until next time friends